The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. So the listeners, love linguistics, love languages, Leslie Bontogoulet. Hi, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Weekly Linguist Podcast. Uh, this is Jarrett, and I want to start this episode by apologizing to you. Why? Because we're late in getting this episode to you. We normally release our episodes on Thursdays, but today is Friday. And what happened? Well, somewhere between a reset of the computer and Google Drive and Audacity it all got deleted. So I had to completely redo it from scratch. But having said that, this is going to be an excellent episode, I believe. For this episode, what I've done is taken a few of the recordings that I still had with Anthony Grant that did not get included in the previous episode, which was episode five, and I have spliced them in and tried to make them run as concurrently and smoothly as possible. Some of these discussions come from the actual interview that we did, and some of them come from the recording of the time when me and Anthony actually introduced ourselves. So it was a much more informal, relaxed conversation, and I think you'll hear that. I think that these particular conversations will be very interesting. To start with, um, we talk about the similarities between biology and lexicostatistics. Then we get into a discussion of glottal chronology and whether it's valid or not. We then talk about Philippine languages. Before we get started, however, I would like to say that I really appreciate the fact that it seems every episode that we've released has grown in number. Every episode has had more downloads and more listeners than the previous episode. So that's really cool, and we thank you. However, we also would very much appreciate it if you would send us feedback. Tell us what you think we're doing well. Give us some pointers on what we could do better. Uh, We know there's always room to improve. But uh, please go ahead and do that. Send us your comments, critiques, suggestions to podcast at weeklylinguist.com. And don't forget that you can always go to the website, weeklylinguist.com, and check out the show notes for each one of the episodes. And there you will find a list of all of the resources that we discuss in this episode, as well as a small list of additional resources if you are interested in going a little further. Having said that, let's get started. We're getting towards the end, like we said before, we could go on forever. But let me ask you a couple of really quick questions. You you compare in your paper on using qualitative lexicostatistics, you compare lexicostatistics to biology, the biological cognate sets and the cognate grid. Mm. Take a few moments and talk about that. Right. Well, it's a trend that's been happening a lot in lexicostatistics. People have been learning a lot about biology and applying concepts from biology to lexicostatistics. Um, Concepts about, um, especially synapomorphies, exclusively shared innovations, and exclusively shared innovations that have a, a positive outcome. So they don't innovate, and in, um, the outcome is zero. That doesn't tell you anything about anywhere, and it can happen at any time. But if you've got two languages that show an innovation, and it's say P becoming K before front vowels. 
or words with P and front vowels becoming words with K and front vowels and then let's say a statistical list. That is a positive exclusively shared innovation. Cognacy grid is simply something that in my view, people using lexico-statistics, um, generally when I'm talking about this stuff, I call it lex with a double X at the end, it saves a few syllables, um, should be doing anyway when they're comparing languages. What you do is you get uh, your word lists, you get your gloss lists, and you try and see not whether words on one list are cognate or non-cognate with words on the another list, but you do several lists at one time. So you say, right, this looks like a conservative variety of language. So I'll put this first. I'll call its outputs A. Now I'll put this next language next to it and see how many are cognates. And if they're cognates, they score an A. And if they're not cognates, they score a B. And if they're part cognates, so we can say you know, B plus or something to mark them out. And then get another language and say, right, cognates that are the same as the first two will get an A. Ones that correspond to the first one, but not the second one, will get an A as well. And ones that correspond to the second one, but not the first one, will be scored as B. And ones that don't correspond to either of them will get a C. So you get sort of strings of A's, you get a column full of A's at the left. Then you get a kind of beautiful carpet-like format of A's and B's and C's and so on all over the grid. And this is a cognacy grid because it helps you to see which forms are cognate within your sample. And also, if you've got a fixed number of lines or rows, say you're using a 100-word list, and you've got a column and you're comparing, say, 10 languages, then notionally, you should have 10 times 100 is 1,000 cells in which to put these things. And of course, if you've got more than one word for a, con a particular concept in one language, you can fill it with whatever other words you need. You don't have to strictly go to 1,000. You don't have to make mathematics your overlord if it gets in the way of actually looking at the data qualitatively, i.e. getting hold of the data and seeing what there is in there, which is another thing that lexicostaticians ought to do. And when you've got a cognacy grid, you can look at the uh, words, and if you see that every row has the same word for a particular concept, in one row you've got the same word for a particular concept across all your 10 languages, and they all score A, then that gives you information. If you find that they're heterogeneous and you've got 10 different words from 10 different languages for the same concept, that's also information. It's right at the other end. And if you've got cases where some languages have the same word and other languages use a different word, or there are two or three words competing for popularity amongst the 10, then that again gives you information. Um, and you can, if you are so minded, Add up the number of different cognate sets in each row. Add them up, you know, one to a hundred and see how many different cognate sets there are in each row and come up with a kind of cognate density number, uh, which is very broadly enlightening. Um, if you've got two sets 
of languages and you've used the same list for both sets of languages and one has a cognate, cognate density number that's much lower than the other, then it suggests that the ones that have the lower number are languages that are rather more closely related to one another than the ones in the other sample. Hey, I'm interested to ask you a question. How do you know David Zork? How do I know David Zork? Um, well, my question would be, how do you know David Zork? Okay. I know David Zork because uh, I was introduced to him through Jason Lobel. I know Jason Lobel. I never met physically yeah. either David Zork or Jason Lobel. Mm -hmm. But I know both their bodies of work. And in the case of David Zork, I've read everything he's produced that I've been able to get my hands on. Uh, including stuff on languages that I have no connection with whatsoever. Right. Um, but um, I got into touch with him from, uh, or got in touch with him from, uh, Lord, uh, many, many years ago, um, pushing, well, more than 25 years ago, when I discovered that he was doing stuff on a lot of Philippine languages and it sounded interesting. And I wanted to know more. And um, okay. so he sent me some stuff on a clan and, and we talked about Tagalog and things like that. And I mean, I have an interest in Philippine languages, uh, although the one I've done the most work on, uh, I have to qualify this term, most work on means 20 minutes of interview. <laughs> in of all places, the corridor in a government building in KN French Guiana is the, the height of my reliable uh, work on this language is Chavacano. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but I had a student in my class last year, just graduated, a mature student, who um, was a care worker by by trade, and she, she was a native speaker of Ilocano. Okay, okay, yeah. So I got her to do some work on Ilocano for her project in my typology module. Well, Ilocano is interesting because it's usually the language that that they talk about or they use as an examples when they're discussing reduplication. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, actually the uh, the my my area of focus at the moment is actually a Philippine language, um, which is how which is how I came across your name, actually, because David Jason Lobel, David Zork. Re Googling David Zork, I came across that article that I that I emailed you about years ago. But I actually work. There's a little island in the northwest corner of of Cebu called Bantayan, and they have a they have a language that is what I consider to be a sister language to Ilongo. And so this is the one that we're working on right now. So right you know, down, down in the Visayas. <laughs> well, I can I, I can appreciate that because uh, I looked at Ilongo a bit um, by. When I was doing my Chabacano work, because Charles Frake said many, you know, 50 years ago plus, that there was an Ilongo component in the Sambarangenio vocabulary. Um, and it had to be, you know, it had to be Ilongo because there were terms there that you didn't find in Cebuano or Kinaraya or um, any any of the others. Um, and uh, this indicated something about you know, how um, Sambo Ingenio had got to where it was and if you look at a map it makes a rather nice straight line if you if you throw Iloilo City into the mix. True, true. Um, I would, so I mean it would also make perfectly logical sense for them to have gone that way 
Um, so, um, actually, that lines up with what Jason and I have looked at. There's historical documents that I think it was it wasn't Pigafetta, it was um, Alcina, Alcina, okay. who basically he said that according to his to people that he interviewed. The people on Bantayan claimed yeah. to be their 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 predecessors from from the area of Samarleti, and so if you look at that, those people move across Bantayan Samarleti, and they end up in um in in Panay and 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 Negros, yeah. and just like you were saying, Jason believes that that mixed with Kinaira'a and became you know roughly speaking what is today's uh, Ilongo or Hiligaynon yeah. and what was on Bantayan got mixed with Cebuano and became Bantayano so i think w- what you're saying in that directionality makes sense to me yeah um i mean the problem is uh, you will have found this i'm sure and i mean david zork's phd was an attempt to kind of knock this this idea on the head is that people tend to talk about Bisayan dialects and you and you know and I know and David oh, yeah. and oh, Jay, yeah. they are not dialects they're very closely related languages they have features in common that other Philippine languages don't have but they're not dialects and they can't be regarded as such and Cebuano doesn't speak for all of them we should talk about that further because well, it's a big it's a big issue especially when you talk to Filipinos I actually had a Filipino one time in Bantayan the little town of Santa Fe told me that Bantayanon was a dialect of Tagalog. And I had to keep myself from laughing, to be honest with you, but it, it was, um, um, Jason was there with me. And I, I I looked at him and we were both trying not to laugh, not to hurt this guy's feelings, but he was dead serious. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, this kind of sort of fake, fo- well, fake folk linguistics is a harsh term, but folk pseudo-linguistics, there's a lot of it about not least in the Philippines, and there are a lot of funny ideas about Philippine languages about that. I think part of my interest was the fact that living in Britain, there's no real work done on Philippine languages, or there wasn't, you know, until you know people started going through SIL and things like that. Um, so they were a kind of unknown quantity, and, and getting it hard information on them was rather difficult. I mean, for a long time, my, my point of reference that was giving me a clearer picture was actually the the article in Encyclopedia Britannica, which I don't know who wrote it, possibly John Wolfe, possibly a young Bob Blust, um, that had a quite a good handle on these things. Might have been Hal Conklin, for that matter. Yeah, so it sort of pointed out that they weren't all just dialects. It pointed out there was a group called the Cordillera, and then there was a, there was a sort of a larger group and so on. And, I mean, the reading I've done on Philippine languages, I... I with the help of people like David Zork, I, I've done well, but I've basically had to discover things for myself because the Philippine languages in Britain are still a kind of unknown quantity. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I've actually had a very similar discussion on several occasions. Mm. I have been twice, it's either twice or three times, to the annual meeting of the Linguistic Society of America, the LSAs. Yeah. And... Um, you know, they'll end up and they'll do their little, um, the what do you call it, the little brochure or the program, and they'll put it all in, in PDF so you can search it. Both times I've gone, I have searched Philippines, Tagalog, Cebuano, Bisaya, and Filipino with an F. And none of those have ever shown up in any meeting that I've ever been to. And I've actually asked, you know, why does the Philippines not get attention? 
And um, and I've never gotten a good answer to that question. Um, but for some reason, the Philippines does not get the attention worldwide that I think it deserves. Oh, I, I fully agree with you. I mean, uh, there was a time when it got a bit more attention. That was at the time when people like David Zork were doing their PhDs. So we're talking Cornell, we're talking the early 70s, we're talking you know, Ford Foundation and, and things like that, money being thrown at this. Um, and people, you know, people like Paul Schachter, who yep. went LA, uh, UCLA. Um, and I mean, I, I've had Philippine linguist friends who... I've lost touch with Pasquin Buenaventura Naila, but she and I were very good friends for a number of years. She's, I think, retired from from the field now. But uh, um, this is the thing. I mean, it's it's more than one percent of the the world's population for a start. That, not, in and of itself, should should put it on the linguistic map a lot more. True. 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 Um, and it, it attempts to get Philippine linguistics sort of done on a pan-Philippine scale in you know, with language atlases and stuff. Well, but, I wonder, you know, that you mentioned I, that. What? I said, I wonder now that you mentioned that, because I have noticed that a lot of these languages just get thrown into a, a one big bag. And yeah. I, I, want, I wonder if it's not because their primary distinguishing feature, which is that everybody talks about, is this, you know, this focus system or how we're, different names for it. Yeah. But it seems to be, it seems to work basically the same way across the languages. So I'm wondering if the differences in this, I might be off here, but I'm, I've wondered sometimes if, since the differences tend to be not 100%, but mostly lexical, whether people just feel like they all work the same way, just change the words, there's not a whole lot to look at there. Very probably. I mean, the point is, of course, you know, the, you know, the, the mechanics of, of the, the topic focus, assuming the ins and the ums, they're the same from language to language to language. You, know, you can find ins and ums at the north of Luxon, and you can find them in, I imagine, in somewhere like the San, in the Talaud Islands and everywhere in between, mm-hmm. with of the exception of Sambanga City. Um, but there are reasons for that. Um, and um, people think, oh, well, they're Philippine dialects and they're all the same. You know, you know one, you know the lot. They've got similar phonological systems for the most part with a few little differences, somehow Correct. short. Right. Five schwa, some have changed P to F. Some do consonant gemination like Ilocano and some of them don't like Tagalog. They've got a kind of morphological, a Philippine type, which once you've got your head around it, and it's not the easiest thing to grasp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad somebody agrees with me. Um, works, <laughs> works um, but, you know, both for Ilocano and for, pick a language at random, Maguindanao. And they've got a lot of common vocabulary, and they've also shared in a lot of loans from the same sources. Right. I mean, sometimes you get you know more Malay words in things like Maranao and Maguindanao, but that's what you expect. Um, but you also get a lot of them in, in Tagalog, and the point in, in Tagalog especially is that a lot of words that people have taken as being sort of cognates or direct inheritance from your proto-Malay or Polynesian uh, are actually Malay loans into Tagalog, and, and John Waltz did a, a decent enough job of sifting them out back in the 70s. And there's just sort of general, I think, lack of interest in them. I mean, PALI at the University of Hawaii and, and Cornell did a pretty good job. Uh, and I, I used works from there when I was trying to get my head around these languages, as I felt I needed to know something about Hilly going on structure if I was looking at Chabacano, because that was the primary Philippine input into it before 
the the area started getting flooded with people who spoke Cebuano and, and Tagalog. Well, that was either Cecil Motus or Wolfenden that you were looking at. Then. I was looking at both of them. And I was looking at some yeah. earlier stuff as well, you know, some stuff from the bad old colonial days. And I mean the bad old American colonial days, I have to say, not not the Spanish stuff. Right, uh, right. Yes, some of the books that were produced in the tens and twenties and so on that didn't get. Well, that was back when when Wolfenden was he was was presenting uh, Healy Gino in, in um, like a tag mimic approach. I, I I had a copy of that. And I couldn't understand a bloody word. <laughs> well, good. You make me feel better, Anthony, because I I've read it and I don't get it. <laughs> I I can, I can tell you the trick to it, Jarrett, and it's perfect. <laughs> what you do is is you you cr- lightly cross out all the tagmimic symbology in the uh, beneath the the, in the Ghanaian words and work work out the stuff from the language itself and then see what you get. Because that's, that's good uh, advice. <laughs> I, I don't. I, well, I don't know if Asylo is still teaching tag mimics. No, I had to ask my um the you know the director of my studies at Tulane. Yeah. She's one. She's one of these that she's an encyclopedia of knowledge, you know. Yeah. And I, I so when I came across this Wolfenden work and it was all in tag mimics. What was that name? Is that Kenneth Pike? Anyway, yeah. I asked her. I, I asked her about it, and she said, you know, Jarrett, you could go read a book on it, but you know, there's not much going on. Nobody uses it anymore today. So yeah. It, it was kind of. She said it was a not a flash in the pan. Is not what she said, but basically she said it, it had its moment in history. So it did, uh, and I'm sure that at one level, sort of looks in the cold hard light of day when you don't actually have to use it on a day to day basis. It probably presents an analysis of language that's really good, but it's a whole symbology. I mean, you, you, you see a line of. I mean, I used to look at a line of Hiligaynon, and I would see a line of English, and I'd see a line of tagmimic symbology, and I think. The hardest of these to understand is a line in the middle, which is the symbology. Um, I can pick things out of some of the t- Hiligaynon sentences from my uh, mix and match and rather scratchy knowledge of Tagalog vocabulary. Uh, right. And I, I know what the English is supposed to be, and I can guess which thing you know, the verb group's going to be and stuff like that. But what's going on in between, you know, this, this, this kind of morphosyntactic rubble in between is, is a complete closed book to me. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. I'm definitely with you on that. Before I let you go, because I know this has been your long day, I um I'm enjoying this. No, I actually love it. And if you, I'm going to ask your permission to maybe cut some, splice some of this into the interview because some of it's been really good, and I like some of the way you've you phrased some of the stuff. I don't want you to read any opinion of mine into this. Yeah. But let's say, primarily because of glottal chronology, lexico statistics kind of has not the best reputation in some circles. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, you know, the way I've seen it and the the way I've looked into it, glottal chronology has generally been discredited, but lexico statistics is a very different situation. Like I had a friend of mine who has never looked at it much, and we were talking about the fact that I was going to be speaking to you. And when I said lexico statistics, she kind of grimaced. And I said, wait a minute, there's a difference. Glottal chronology attempts to set a, a, a to indicate a, a fixed rate of change. And that's the major problem because you got this the difference, this rate of change, and you can genu- you can determine when a, two languages split. And I said that's not at all what lexico statistics is doing. I mean, am I in the ballpark here? You're right. I mean, people have used lexico statistics to do glottochronology. 
and people have done glottochronology in ways other than using lexicon. Uh, the problem with glottochronology is that, you know, as we've known for sure since 1962, the year I was born, it doesn't give reliable results. Sometimes it overestimates, sometimes it underestimates. And attempts to try and calibrate things using known historical events have smoothed off some of the edges, but it ha they haven't made it perfect. The uh, problems are that in glottochronology, uh, what you need to do is you need to you need to get down and dirty with the data. Simply no substitute for it. You need to recognize that if there are two or three perfectly good equivalents for a word in a language, you need to enter them all. You need to be able to recognize loan words. You need to be able to recognize cases of stems repeated in more than one gloss. So word for man and the word for husband may contain the same stem, for example. Right, right. But right. also need to be able to recognize something in many languages which is not so easily recognized. And that's kind of internal borrowing. I'll give you an example. Spanish is a language a lot of people are interested in. It's increasingly the most popular language in schools in Britain and in Here America. Well. Here as well. Yeah. It's been, that's, coming, that's coming from a French professor. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been a popular language for a lot longer in the States than it has in Britain, and for perfectly obvious reasons. You know, just look at the, the Rio Grande and the Gadsden Purchase and stuff like that. Right. And um, when people you ask people about Spanish, if you want to ask them a question, a trick question, which language has Spanish borrowed the most vocabulary from? I feel like you're trying to trick me, but I guess the, the initial response that somebody would say that has a little bit of knowledge would probably say Latin. Then they would be right. Okay, well, <laughs> I thought you were trying to trick me there on that. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Um, a lot of people would, who've got a bit of knowledge might say Arabic. And it's oh, right, right. Some people might be bold and say Basque, and it's borrowed very little from Basque. The two biggest donor languages to Spanish are French and Latin, uh, with the you know, Italian, Arabic, and Basque, you know, pulling up the rear, and you know, little bits from Portuguese and Catalan and stuff. The point is that Spanish is also descended from Latin, as we know. Right. Back in 1969, a guy called William Patterson wrote an article examining layers of the Spanish vocabulary in a 5,000-word sample that they got from the frequency dictionary that uh, people like Alphonse Juillon were behind. And um, he pointed out that essentially a third of words in the sample were words that Spanish had not inherited from Latin, but that it had taken over from Latin since the early Middle Ages. Hmm. And if you can't recognize words that are, that's happened to in a word list, then you're likely to find one or two. Then you're going to count cognates where you don't have cognates, you've got borrowings. Uh, and it's the same as I made the same point I made in my questionnaire. You did get the questionnaire, didn't you? Um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, I, I, was, I was drawing on my on my rec recollections of, of Tagalog and loan levels in Tagalog, which interests me a lot because it's it's been under researched, except by David Zorg. Uh, so kudos to him. Um, mm -hmm. Quite a number of words that people would think are inherited in Tagalog are actually loans from Kapampangan. Right. Uh, right. You know, the example of the word to climb, for example, that are 
there are cognates in other Philippine languages, but with um, Tagalog, you've got the the A initial thing, which is what happens when the first vowel of a stem in an earlier form was a schwa. You get this kind of metathesis, um, and the schwa becomes an A. So Tagalog has borrowed the Kapampangan word for decline and adopted it as its word for decline, and quite a few others. But you know, to the uninitiated, it looks a bit like a, a cognate. And so lexical intermarriage between Tagalog and Kapampangan might be going to call the Tagalog's way into Kapampangan nowadays. Now, from a few remarks I've heard, I understand that that's the way it is. But previously, when the Tagalogs moved up from the Visayas into Luzon, into territory where Sambalic languages were spoken, it was the other way around, and it was quite basic as well. Um, I, I compared the, the Kapampangan stratum in Tagalog to the Norse stratum in English. Huh. And again, you know, these things are often rather hard to recognize. You know, can't always recognize for sure that a word for, from in English is from Norse rather than being inherited from Old English. Right. Um, just as the, uh, sometimes it takes some, some work to discover that a word in Spanish is actually a borrowing from Latin um, and not an inherited word, because if it doesn't contain any of the consonants that uh, we know sort of indicate that something has been inherited rather than borrowed, um, you know, certain consonant clusters like fl uh, and so on, then it can be rather tricky. Factors like this help to skew the picture of when languages might have diverged from one another. Well, that's uh, similar to one of the things that I'd ask you about in that Tagalog uh, that, that me and David Zork had, had actually talked about, which was you have this situation where two related languages, very closely related languages, at least as far as back as they know, have two different words for a, for a concept. And then all of a sudden one language takes and he starts using the other language's word for that. Hmm. And so we were talking about whether that is a, a cognate or a loan word. It would be a loan word. The point is, we've been, you know, the Swadesh list, and, and no offense to Maurice Swadesh, uh, one of my heroes, was predicated on the assumption that it contained the, the kind of words that were least likely to be borrowed. And people have held on to this idea of basic vocabulary ever since basic borrowing proof vocabulary. It's simply not That's interesting. That That's it interesting. Cannot be borrowed, but it is certainly true that this this extra sort of ironclad, dreadnought, bulletproof lexical stratum is a lot more borrowing proof than might be thought, but it is not borrowing proof. There's a, a big distinction. And yeah, you using Swadesh lists and, and lexical lists like this, well, they're very useful things to use, but the further away people using them actually get from the data at hand, then the more likely they are to come up with some rather uh, erroneous historical ideas. Yeah, I've heard some weird ones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Also remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us 5 stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. 
Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or cri- critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest to topic uh, a topic for an upcoming episode. Thank you.